Amen. So, having considered Jesus' work in the widest possible frame, that was our passage that we've been in the last couple weeks, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, the Apostle Paul now narrows things down to the very particular. So we go from the widest possible frame to the most particular. And he announces the reconciliation of all things. He says, whether on earth or in heaven, whether humans, whether ain't, whatever, all of it. And he proceeds to say, he proceeds to descend from those heights to say to us in our passage this morning, and you, and you, this universe-spanning drama of hostility and peace is the same one that is at work in every local church and in every individual life. And you. Christ's work of reconciliation is not something that is distant from us, but near. It plays out, the apostle wants us to know, in our church and in our families and marriages and so on. Hence, our life together as a church matters. Our reconciliation to one another is a small but real instance of the cosmic reconciliation to come. When we can overcome offense, when we can cultivate brotherly love with one another, when we can bear one another's burdens together, these witness in a very real and tangible way to the cross of peace at work in our midst. So we go from that cosmic scale down to to you, to us as a church. And so what it does is demonstrate the sort of community, the kind of people that we are called to be. And that is not dissected and autonomous members, but a body knit together in love and humility and compassion. Now, it's hard work, this unity, but it's the work of the gospel. He has reconciled all things to himself and us. But there was a time prior to our reconciliation, and that is where the Apostle Paul takes us, when very different desires governed our lives and determined the way we live. Look at verse 21 of our passage. He says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. And we'll stop there before he continues. So here, we are taken down a walk, uh, taken uh, on a walk down memory lane. And what the apostle wants us to remember is our life prior to the cross. He says, and you were formerly alienated. And he sums up our former life in two words, alienation and hostility. Now, however we view our past, this is the way things were. Estranged from God and against God. Now, certainly looking back upon our lives, there are good things to see. But we cannot forget this one thing. This deep fissure that runs through our lives or had run through our lives. We may not have been particularly bad, but nevertheless, we cannot forget that we were turned away from the truth. That there was a point in every one of our lives where we were 
walking away from God, where we were unreconciled from Him. And the Apostle wants us to remember this. You were formerly alienated. And the primary location of this former alienation was in the mind. You were alienated and hostile in mind, the Apostle says. So rather than merely intellectual thought, we should understand the mind, this place where things had went astray, as something more like our mindset or our disposition to the world. The word there in the Greek refers more to the way the mind works rather than simply knowledge. It refers more to the understanding and to the intellect. So it's not a matter of just getting new information, entering new data. It's a matter of perspective. So it's not that the glasses, our glasses are dirty and need cleaning. It's that they're the wrong prescription and the lenses are shattered. Now, I think the best way to understand the mind as it's used here, is in relation to our consciousness. Again, our consciousness is our point of orientation to the world. It's that first-person perspective through which all reality is filtered, which is unique to you. That's the way you look at the world. And it's there that the Apostle is telling us. And the very act of being alive, in, in, in the way that you even filter reality into yourself, that we've gone astray. That's where things have gone wrong. Again, it's not merely that consciousness lacks the right information, though it does, but that its very frame, the, 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 the way it looks at the world, the way it perceives things is out of joint. It's directed away from spiritual truth. It's shrunken and narrow, and so it's unable to account for the way things are. Now, the shorthand here, is fallen. The mind is fallen. Rather than having room for things above, the mind is dominated by earthly things. Hence, it's alienated from God. Now, maybe a good word to capture the meaning here is incompatible. Human minds and their source in God are estranged from one another and thus alienated or ill-suited to one another. It's as if a glove that had fit perfectly has dried up in the sun and shrunken. The mind is, is, is too stiff now. It's too fragile to accommodate God, to fit him within it. The psalmist in, in Psalm chapter 10, verse 4, I think he gets to the point here. He says, The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So, rather than a simple confession of atheism, there is no God is the functional reality of the mind. In all his thoughts, the New International Version reads, there is no room for God. The plane is loaded to capacity and it cannot carry any more cargo. So we might say that the mind is godless, not in a particularly moral sense, but in a functional sense. God simply doesn't enter the picture. He's not accounted for. He doesn't somehow fit into the way the mind works. And such, the apostle wants us to remember, was our life prior to the cross. 
Such was our life prior to when we believed upon Jesus and were saved. God was an interesting question, maybe. Something you thought about late at night. Maybe a religious item as well. But not the basis of our orientation to the world. He was instead an afterthought, an unnecessary postscript. And we still have those days and weeks and even months when we look back upon our lives and realize that God was absent from them entirely. We just went our way. This is what it means to be alienated in mind. There's just no room for God. He's not taken into account. He doesn't fit into the picture in any way. Now, this alienation, being separated from God in our minds, gives way to hostility. A mind separated from its true source, right? That's where it's supposed to rest, is in God. When it's separated from God, it's necessarily determined or filled up by something else. The mind was born to rest in heaven, but it comes to rest on earth. And as God leaves this void behind him, countless other earthly cares rush in to fill that space. And what happens is that when the mind is alienated from God, it then begins to take on a character, an approach to reality that's inherently opposed to God and to his righteousness. It goes through something of a reverse metamorphosis. It loses its former beauty and its ability to fly, and it reverts back to eating dust and crawling on its belly. From the spirit, the mind is reduced to the flesh. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. He says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, what this hostility of the mind essentially is, is its inability to come into line with God's will. So, so that's what this hostility is. That's, that's where the two are at odds with one another. It's like a wild animal, the mind, that cannot be domesticated. It, it cannot be brought into uh, line with God's commandments because it's fleshly. Again, here is the notion of incompatibility. Two things that cannot coexist. The spirit and the flesh, remember Galatians chapter 5, are in opposition to one another. They're set against one another. So a mind that's characterized by one will necessarily be at war against the other. Like light and darkness, they cannot coexist. Unless, however, there's something in the scriptures called being double-minded, where someone is divided against themselves, James chapter 1, but that is another matter. Now, scripture describes this fleshly mind as an uncircumcised heart, meaning that the flesh, which shapes the consciousness, right, which shapes our view of the world, the way that we operate, 
that that fleshly principle needs to be cut away. And that is the only thing that can be done for a fleshly mind. The spirit and the flesh cannot be brought into agreement. There is no harmonious future between the two. One must go. And when the flesh is not cut away, right? when that, when that act of uh, removal of the body of flesh, as we'll see later on in Colossians, when that doesn't happen, what it amounts to, the apostle says, is evil deeds. It flows from a mind alienated, then to a mind hostile, then to a life where it's characterized by the works of the flesh. And we know what those are. Galatians 5, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing. These are the manifestation of a mind that is not reconciled to its source, or at least not completely. But, that is the way things were. There's a line, there's a a point where that is no longer the case in our lives. Now, things are different. Look now at verse 22. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. He has reconciled you, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, reconciliation, what is central to this long um, cosmic story the apostle has been telling, um, is always, reconciliation is always an act of self renunciation. It's always an act of self-renunciation. Because in pursuing reconciliation, what you are doing is giving up the right to pay back the person uh, what, what they did to you, right? To get your justice. In other words, when a relationship has been shattered and to restore it, someone has to pay the relational cost. And in some cases, it's both parties that have to do that, but it has to be done. That hostility between the two parties has to be absorbed and forgiven by someone before things can move forward. Otherwise, right, if that doesn't happen, reconciliation is not really reconciliation. It's only of sentimental value, where we've skirted the, the, the real problem to arrive at a premature and a false peace, right? So we say it's reconciliation. We act like things are okay, but that root of the problem has not been taken care of. Um, There's a pastor in South Africa, um, and he was trying to reconcile the black and white members of his church after the apartheid, right, if you're familiar with that situation. And he called what I've been describing cheap reconciliation. Now, he spoke of a particular member in his church saying, Uh, the following. He didn't understand that the moment um, was just the beginning. He wanted everything to be forgotten and gone. He made it too easy. He wanted us to be further along the road than we actually were. He says more, but then he concludes with this. Reconciliation only happens through pain and the cross. 
Reconciliation only happens through pain and the cross. So waving the wand, zapping away the relational damage into thin air only serves to perpetuate the problem. The deep relational cracks have not been healed but only papered over. Instead, reconciliation is costly. To make peace is to deny revenge in whatever form. It requires the one who's been wronged to forego their due, to forego their justice for the sake of the relationship. Now, as long as that justice is held on to, as long as their right in the matter is held on to, there can be no reconciliation. It has to be forgiven. It has to be covered in love. Now, in our reconciliation to God, this great thing that the Apostle proclaims here, this self-renunciation, this paying of the cost, comes entirely from one side. Look again at the beginning. He has reconciled you. The picture that we're given is not two parties meeting in the middle, coming to some agreed-upon uh, sort of compromise and resolution, but the picture is one party encompassing and accomplishing the entire work. He has reconciled you. We don't meet in the middle on this. It issues entirely from the side of God, entirely from His sheer grace and kindness. He travels the distance between us. He comes down to us from above in His incarnation and His death in Christ. So in becoming one of us, he enters into our hostility and he overcomes it within. In fact, the cross is something of a paradox because it's the pinnacle on the one hand of God's supreme desire to heal the human race, to reconcile it to himself. And it is at the same time the supreme and pinnacle expression of man's desire to destroy God. They, they both meet in that element. Alienation meets hospitality. Hostility meets goodwill and estrangement meets reconciliation in the cross of Christ. God inverts human hostility, turning it in upon itself to bring about just the opposite through it. Our supreme act of antagonism, crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ, is the very thing that God uses to bring us near to Him. He draws us in through our own hostility. He reconciles us through our own alienation. Moreover, the apostle says, He has reconciled you. God's love in Christ is irreducibly personal. It is as particular as it is cosmic, as much as for the individual as it is for the whole. I live by faith in the Son of God, the Apostle Paul says, Galatians 2.20, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Each one of us can say those same words, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And what this amounts to is the unshakable assurance that God is for us. He's not goaded into the cross. There's no one beside him making a case to restore humanity unto himself. 
It comes entirely from His free and sovereign grace. Of His own will, He chose to forego His justice. This self-renunciation, His right to exact what He owed, what we owed to Him, rather. He paid that relational cost in His body on the cross through death. There is reconciliation because God willed it. Because He willed the good of His creatures from eternity in His perfect and infinite love. So, we're reconciled to God. He has reconciled us to Himself. And our reconciliation takes place where it originally went astray. The mind. That's where things went wrong. Or, or read Romans 1, right? It says much the same. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And then all this train of ugly stuff follows from that. That's where it went wrong. And that's where the problem is reversed. The mind. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, the flesh is cut away. It's removed and it's replaced by something new. Now this will become clear later in the epistle, especially when we get into chapter 2. But it's worth touching upon now. It's the central promise of the new covenant, which was foretold long ago in the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel and so on. Our minds, which are incapable of submitting to the law of God, which are inherently alienated from and hostile to the truth, would be given, it was promised, a new orientation. They'd be set in a new direction and something new would happen. Jeremiah Chapter 31, verses 31 through 33. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Under the new covenant... God's law is no longer a standard outside the heart and mind. A code which is alien to our nature, which is against our nature. Instead, the promise is that the law is placed within us. And it becomes the source and the structure of our hearts and of our lives. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart. Later on, Jeremiah says... Uh, that, that God will, uh, we won't need to teach one another because God will be our teacher. Here, we are given new lenses and a new prescription through which we can view the world. Hence, obedience now, it comes from within rather than being something forced upon us, right? It arises from within the heart. What shall a young man do that he may not sin against you? By storing God's words in his heart. So, the heart and mind are given an entirely new orientation in the new covenant. And that's the covenant we celebrate every Lord's Day in Holy Communion. Our consciousness now, because of what God has done in Christ and through His Spirit, runs to God as naturally as a river runs to the ocean. The principle within us of alienation and hostility is removed, and there's peace. There's peace. We are brought near to God, and we are made capable of loving and obeying God. Moses, 
puts it this way. This was promised long ago because from the very beginning, the Old Covenant was well, was known it wasn't going to do the job. Here's what Moses says, Deuteronomy 30, chapter 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. The promise is that flesh around our hearts would be cut away, that our hearts would be circumcised, and that we would no longer be of the flesh, but we would be of the Spirit. Now, if you have believed upon Christ, there is no need to seek this inward circumcision again. It happened, and that once for all. Colossians 2.11, you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Again, if you have trusted in Christ, this is the fact about you. The flesh has been cut away. And though your mind, though our minds still tend toward earthly things by this force of habit, that's not their ultimate orientation. That's not the truest thing about us, because beneath that outer husk, right, sometimes very deep beneath, there remains your truest self, the one that has been reconciled and united to God, oriented toward Him. Again, if you believe this is true, Your mind doesn't need another spark. It only needs to be fanned into flame. It needs to be nurtured and strengthened in communion with Christ and with one another. So later on, the apostle will say in Galatians chapter, I mean in Colossians 3, set your mind, this thing that's now been reconciled to God, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. That old life is gone, and you are hidden with Christ in God. So as we push deeper into the hidden life of God, so this life hidden deep within us also will begin to emerge. Or as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 4, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live live. Now, what then? Now, when it comes to the mind and all this, I'm tempted to give you some tips and tricks, right, practices, but I don't think that'd be appropriate. I need tips and tricks to improve my golf swing, um, not my relationship with God. It's not ultimately a matter of doing this or that, um, helpful as those may be, but really, it's a matter of opening oneself up to the work of the Spirit. Because the fact is that our hearts and minds, as we know, can become blocked up from time to time, insulated. And that it's almost that our thoughts just grow into one another, and it just becomes this knotted up ball that nothing can penetrate other than our own perspective, where God can't get in, others can't get in, and we're trapped. The mind becomes a prison. And what one needs to do is take a hammer to their self-contained perspective, alienated from the truth, break it up to let some light get in. And so we need to pray. We need to ask God that he would deliver us into the truth and that he would grant us the mind of Christ, that he would break up that 
inward turn. Now the mind, when it's reconciled to its source, for whom and through whom it was created, when this happens, things can go rightly once again. That's really interesting. Um, Verse 21 which delineates the problem, is a mirror image of verses 9 and 10. So let me read those. Verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, right? So one thing leads to another. Now look at verses 9 and 10 of the same chapter. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. So as the mind, right, our consciousness, our approach to the world is renewed, that is, filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding, it leads naturally to good works. It's that former process of alienation and hostility turned, in, or turned upon itself, set on its head. It's clear then, right, the importance the scripture places on the constant renovation of the mind. Again, this is not merely a matter of information, though we need that, but it's more that our minds would be purified and become like springs from which good water flows. Again, the Apostle Paul, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good acceptable, and perfect. Hence, the long game in our reconciliation is that Christ might present us before the Father, he concludes verse 22, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. So reconciliation radiates outward from our minds to our entire person. The long chain from our thoughts to our actions toward ultimately standing before God in complete holiness. Now, it won't be completely established until we are established in perfection. Now, the apostle, the terms that he uses here are sacrificial terms. um, And and they're used to describe um, what an acceptable offering was in the Old Covenant dispensation. So when a worshiper wanted to present his offering before God, it had to be holy and blameless. That is, it had to be consecrated to God, set apart for his use, and it had to be free from defect. It had to be a good offering. And this is the picture of Christ's work in us. He's offering up his church, his bride, having reconciled us to the Father, to present us before Him as a perfect sacrifice, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now currently, we are holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is what the Scripture calls being justified. We're also being made holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. This is what the Scripture calls being sanctified. It has happened. It is happening. And on the last day, we will be perfected in holiness and blamelessness and and being beyond reproach. This is what the scriptures call being glorified. And it's to this end that Jesus died and rose again to reconcile us, that he might present us before the Father, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. This is why he died. So this is what we must labor for. 
This is what we must strive after, to live this life. Now, there's more to the story, and it comes in verse 23. We move from being acted upon, he has reconciled you, now to ourselves being full-fledged actors with our own part to play. So he continues, now verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Christ's work of reconciliation um, is so that we might be presented before God, wholly blameless and beyond reproach, is not some automatic process. It's not a matter in, of which we can kick back and put our feet up and absolve ourselves of responsibility. This perfecting work will continue to completion, the Apostle Paul says, if, verse 23, indeed you continue. So herein lies the notion of human responsibility. We must be resolved to continue, because there are many things that would keep us from doing that. And what we must continue in, the apostle says, is the faith. We must continue in the faith. We must keep exhorting ourselves, keep pushing along that road and never growing slack or dull along the way. Now, as daunting as this may sound, it's a quite straightforward ask that we keep at it, that you keep going, that you continue is the only thing that's being required of us here. We're not being asked to save ourselves. We're being asked to continue. A righteous man falls seven times, the scripture says, and rises again. To continue is not to be perfect. To continue is not to stumble and to fall. To continue is not even to stray from the path. We all do those things. Rather, to continue is to continue. It's to get back in the saddle. It's to keep moving along. Martin Luther put it this way. The whole of the Christian life should be repentance. So to continue, in other words, is to repent and to never cease doing it. Now, our journey stops. It ceases to continue in the faith when we stop repenting. Right? That's how we don't continue. When we stop repenting, we stop in the road. Because the only time when it will be permitted to stop repenting is on that last day, when we are complete in Christ, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. There will be no need for repentance at that point. Till then, our continuing and our repentance go hand in hand. We keep moving down that road. By recognizing, okay, I've turned, I need to come back. Okay, I've stopped, I need to keep going. That's what it means to continue. This is how progress is made in the Christian life. So, the apostle tells us, continue. God wills that you become perfect as he is perfect, but that's his work. Yours, again, is to continue. You just have to get on the bike and keep going. Let God worry about charting the straight line and uh, the proper speed and all the rest. That's his job. 
He gives a greater grace, the scripture says. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So, continue. Keep going. And and with that, let me just end here before we wrap up in the supper. The only appropriate response to the reconciling death of Jesus Christ on our behalf is to continue. That's the only right way to respond to what he's done. Again, the word of truth says he reconciled you through death. That animosity was completely covered and overcome by him. Now, if one's response to this, what Christ has done for us, is to mail it in, not to take the responsibility that we have seriously, then the question naturally arises, well, have this this person actually understood what it means to say that he reconciled you through death? It casts serious doubts on the authenticity of one's faith if it's, I'm just going to mail it in. Rather, to know that, that he loved me, and that he gave himself for me, is all one needs to continue. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So we all grow weary, but let us not cease in doing good. The love of Christ compels us along. It keeps us from stopping in our tracks, and it nudges us to continue on. And as we turn toward the supper now, let's remember that love. Open your hearts to him who is love, that you might be compelled along in love as well. So I invite you now to come receive the elements, and I will lead us in communion in just a moment.